Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 250. And first, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in because 250 feels kind of monumental. It's halfway to 500. It's a nice round number. Uh, It's a lot. I've done a lot of these episodes. I never knew I'd be able to do so many and to be able to meet so many great people when I started this podcast, it was just me and an idea and some of my own silly travel stories. And as you know, in those early days, it was just my friends who would come on. Um, but now I've been so fortunate to have my life completely transformed. Maybe that sounds ridiculous. You know, I'm not, I'm not NPR or anything like that. Uh, but I've been able to to talk to so many incredible people. So that's because of you, because you listen. So thank you so much. All right, this episode, like the last one, was filmed, filmed, like I'm a movie person here, was recorded out in Sag Harbor on the east end of New York. And my guest was Scott Chasky. Scott is a farmer, really like a pioneer in the community farming movement. You may have heard of a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, And that is really an attempt to bring consumers into the world of the producers and to cut out the middleman, to keep things local and seasonal and fresh, to cut down on transportation and the carbon footprint that goes into shipping food. So basically it would be like you supporting and buying from your local farmer instead of going uh, Kifood or what Wegmans, Publix or anything like that. Um, which as we talk about, like seems silly to say, but is actually a bit of a radical notion in, in, in 2021. So he's been doing this work for decades and he's an educator and he teaches people both about the movement, but also about farming and practices. But also he's a wonderful poet and an author. So when I was out in Sag Harbor, I went to Canio's bookshop. I'd like to say hello to Catherine, who was working there at the time, because we chatted a bit about the podcast. But I love used bookshops. And this is like a hybrid used new. And I say this in the most loving way possible, but it, like it's chaos in there because there's just stacks of books and you have to, you could spend hours, right? It's like pushing some books out of the way because there's other ones buried behind it. And some of the stacks are not really in an order, so it really forces you to like engage and to, to search things out. But there's a local section there, and they had a bunch of Scott stuff. So I picked up, I guess you could kind of call this like his seminal work, but I picked up This Common Ground, Seasons on an Organic Farm. And like his, even his prose just oozes with poetry. It's really beautiful. Actually, I think what kind of like maybe sums up the idea of like his viewpoint about nature is in here where he, on page 138, he quotes somebody else named Marty Murray. And I'm sorry if I'm getting that name wrong, but it's the first time I've, I've heard of or read this person. But it says, Marty Murray wrote, Who knows what is ahead in the long march of evolution? But saving the last remnants of wild, untouched country seems to me to be the one wise, altruistic, beneficial, and practical action this nation can take for its sanity. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's really beautiful too. So it was, man, like he, he really is a pioneer in this world and a very well-known figure like around the world uh, in regards to, to farming and community farming and his writing. So it was really a joy and a pleasure to get to meet him. I was fortunate enough to go to his house and we sat outside and you could hear the birds. So hopefully you can hear that in the background with some of the ambient noise. And I got to play with his, uh, his silly farm dog and the air was cool. And it was just so, it was so beautiful being outside and talking to him and being able to pick his brain. So yeah, thanks Scott. And to his wife, uh, Megan, who helped set up the tech side of things also. Thanks so much. So this was a, a joy. So Go to the show notes, as always, and you'll find links to Scott's stuff. Um, go to your local bookshop and pick up his stuff. If they don't have it, they can order it for you. Just be a little patient. Anytime that your local bookshop doesn't have something, just talk to them and they'll get it for you. But I, I would hope you would be able to support local, especially with the theme of this episode. I guess, I don't know. It's the theme of every <laughs> of every episode, but... Yeah, and in the show notes for this episode too will be a link to my Patreon account. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks like shirts, stickers, maybe even a book by Scott. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Scott Chasky. I've, I read The Snow Leopard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's it. And honestly, uh-huh. I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't know more of his work. Uh-huh. And then in reading Amanda's, I was like, wow, he's got this whole body of work. Yeah. Um, what is supposed to be happening at What's the, the center there? Actually, yeah. Well, the, when Peter died, um, uh, the family found they had to sell the property. And he had lived there and written most of his 33 books uh, right there. He'd lived there for 55 years. Wow. And so recently a number of people have gotten together with the idea of creating a uh, basically a, a center to carry on the legacy of his work. Oh, that's uh, amazing. called the Peter Matheson Center. But to do that, um, we need to purchase the property fr- back from the person who, who purchased it from the family. I see. And, and we've been working on it for two years now. So, but we're getting, getting, getting somewhere. No, oh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. And he was an extraordinary man. So the idea of the Peter Matheson Center is not only to celebrate his writing, but his activism, his interest in indigenous peoples, and his travels throughout the world as a naturalist, and to inspire others to continue that kind of work really yeah yeah and i'll you'll notice i go all over the place here uh-huh. but i find this part of new york and this part of the world to be fascinating because you do have artists and naturalists and farmers juxtaposed against just like extreme extravagance (laughs) and wealth and celebrity status and things like that. And it's interesting to see those two worlds coexist in one location. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, beauty attracts people, Mm. right? And we're not that far from New York City. 
Yeah. So those those two factors really sort of get what you've got here. Yeah. And the farming piece is that very few people would know this, but you know this is really one of the best soils in the world. The silt loam that was left here by the glaciers is just a, a, a wonderful growing substance, oh. and so that's why farming has worked here for for so long. And of course, the indigenous people knew that, and you know um, had known that about the soil for thousands of years. And uh, unfortunately, some of the silt loam has turned into lawns, mm. you know, much too much. But the farming continues. So, yeah, it's a good thing. I've been seeing that pop up on the Internet lately. I don't, mm. I don't know your thought on it, but like people saying the, the idea of like a well-manicured lawn, mm. right, being a bit ridiculous because it's sort of just there for show rather than a useful purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when the soil underneath it is beautiful, beautiful soil for growing just about anything. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, a place called Tonawanda outside of Buffalo, New York. Oh. And uh, lived there until I was about 15. Then we moved... Um, to Seattle, Washington. So I spent some time in the West. Then we moved uh, back to Ithaca, New York, and Ithaca really became a home place. Uh, and I spent some years there. And uh, then I traveled all over the place. And, and my wife and I lived uh, about 10 years in England. Uh-huh. So that, you know, that took up a, <laughs> a decade of, of my life, actually. When you were in Tonawanda, what were you getting into as a, a child and a teenager? What were your interests? Yeah, I, do, I, I did not grow up on a farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the, in the beginning of suburbia. Actually, I remember the mall, the first mall being built. Wow. And so um, really, really fascinating that my life has led to, um, you know, being so involved with working with the earth and 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 with farming for so many years because it wasn't it wasn't part of my upbringing in, mm. in Tonawanda. Um, my father had grown up in a tiny little place called Peru, New York, uh, up near the Canadian border near Plattsburgh, and we did spend summers uh, on Lake Champlain and uh, visiting family who, you know, would have had big gardens and uh, and and actually he had grown up on a on a small farm at one time too. So it wasn't so far back there, but I didn't experience it. Ah, uh, okay. What what were your interests and hobbies and what did you think you would be doing as like a profession? Oh gosh, the only the only time that thought ever occurred <laughs> to me, I suppose, was in Seattle. I remember a class where we took some sort of, you know, multiple choice test. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you were supposed to learn, you know, w- where you would be headed in life, right? And, and, and mine all pointed towards being a lawyer. Really? <laughs> um, so it, there wasn't anything that I remember at that time that, that pointed towards, you know, farming or working with the earth. But um, I did not ever think of getting a law degree. <laughs> okay. Did you read a lot uh, at an early yeah, age? Yeah, I read. My mother always, my mother is a great reader and actually at 90, she just turned 99 two days ago. Wow. And she's the librarian where she lives in Ithaca at a place called Kendall. 
That's at amazing. 99 years old, so she's still involved with books. So she passed that on to me. Yeah, I, I was quite a reader, and and when I went to college, uh, I did major in uh, English literature. And um, when I, the the way I got to uh, England uh, was through a program to study for an MFA, a Master's in Fine Arts. Okay. And in in writing and and literature, and and so that became my you know the direction basically. Uh, who were you reading? Like who who do you think you were reading that left a, an impact on you and influenced your poetry? Uh, you know, uh, I started writing poetry in in high school certainly, and uh, the first poets that had a great influence on me were probably, you know, later high school years and certainly then in college right away and, and, and taking courses and, uh, you know, uh, really sort of honing the, the direction that I was going uh, by poets rather than prose writers. And the, the first one would be Yeats, William Butler Yeats, the Irish poet. And, uh, and then I remember uh, an incredible class with uh, a really wonderful professor on William Blake. Mm. And, and so um, there was, every time, you know, I found a new writer like that, a new world opened up basically. Oh yeah. And so, yeah, those were the, those are the ones I would go back to, but actually, and, and, and just now I, I, I've always wanted to write about um, the time I, the lucky time I had with a, a Northumberland poet named Basil Bunting. Wow, that's and a name right there. <laughs> Great name for a poet. Yeah. Right? And, and he actually came to, this was just out of luck, that uh, he came to teach for a semester uh, at Binghamton, where, where I was at SUNY Binghamton. It was called Harper College. And um, I, was, I, I was simply in awe of this 70-year-old poet from Northumberland. I don't think I even knew where that was, but mm. it's north of the um, Humber in on the border between England and Scotland. And uh, he he was such a fascinating figure. And I just now finished writing a chapter about Basil Bunting, first time I've ever addressed it. Uh, and there's a fascinating thing in the end of one of his long poems. Uh, he's talking about an early love, and he says, she has been with me 50 years. Well, Basil Bunting's been with me 50 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I finally wrote about him, actually. So, uh, Wow, that's like a yeah. serendipitous moment or something, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a very... And I, the book I'm writing, I didn't... I, I hadn't calculated on a chapter about Basil Bunting, but it's in there, so... What is the the current book you're writing? What's it's the called totality? Soil and Spirit, and it's um, I'm attempting to write about our symbiotic relationship with the natural world. Ah. Uh, there's a word I really love, uh, mutualism, and it sort of you know tells the story of what that is. The way that uh, it describes how plants. Uh, interact with one another and benefit each other. That's what mutualism is, and I'm, I'm trying to write about that. <laughs> no, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Have you even heard of um, the idea that, in a way, 
trees will be communicating with each other? Yeah, and and actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's this wonderful new book by a woman named uh, Suzanne Samard. I don't know if you've heard no, of her. No, I'll write that uh, down. It's called uh, Finding the Mother Tree. And, and, and actually, she made these... Um, Discovery. She's actually, a, you know, a scientist, um, and uh, she made the and grew up in the woods in British Columbia, and just recently published a book. But she published an article in 1997 in in the journal Nature, uh, and Nature coined the word the Wood Wide Web. Oh yeah. And now people have been using that, and there are a number of other people. There are amazing amount of wonderful books right now being published about trees, and um, one of the books that's probably had the greatest reach is is a novel called The Overstory by Richard Powers, and he models a um, a, a character in the book, a really wonderful character that he creates on Suzanne Samard, who just now published this book about how trees communicate. Uh, and, and, and her publication created a whole new field, basically, of, of forest ecologists. Wow. And, and, uh, and so that's why you're hearing about it right now, because yeah. it's happening right now. So I love that. I can already tell this is the kind of conversation where there's a lot of Easter eggs. So I'm like <laughs> taking down notes for like all these authors that I have to read. Um, I had had in my notes you know, very simply what came first, poetry or farming for you, oh, but it sounds as if yeah. it was poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say that. Someone asked me that. I've been asked the question of how they fit together, and I don't have a good answer of how they fit together, but they do. Uh, but uh, someone asked me that years ago, and apparently I, uh, this was told to me. I'd forgotten the incident, but apparently I sort of looked up in the air and said, writing poetry that mm. that came first yeah um but of course they've been intertwined uh uh for the last 40 years at least in my life so yeah. it sounds very strange to say but um environmentalism and a focus on community and farming is kind of counter cultural right now. It's almost a radical notion. Mm. Uh, was there anybody who got you, It's uh, again, it sounds corny to say radicalized, but anybody mm. who like sort of influenced your thinking and mm. and maybe even like your your politics to head down this path? Mm. Um, I, at the moment, no single person is coming to mind, but what happened was um, <laughs> actually in a, in a funny way, uh, and the, the, the book I wrote called This Common Ground, which really tells the story of the community support agriculture farm here uh, in Amagansett, um, there's a character um, named Edgar Wallace who um, grew up and lived his entire life in the little fishing village called Mausel. It's, it's spelled Mousehole uh, in Cornwall. And Edgar became my mentor. And uh, f for working with the earth. Uh, I mean, we got to be great friends because he walked by. We lived on Love Lane. We lived in Love Lane Studio, Mousehole. And, and Edgar would walk up every day to go out and pick violets out in the fields. He'd harvest the violets, then pick three ivy leaves and pack them up in a shoebox and send them off to London to be sold at Covent Garden. Believe it or not, that was still happening. Wow. This was in the 80s. And there were only about three... Older chaps in the in the uh, in the village who were doing this, but I became great friends with Edgar, and he 
taught me how to garden on these cliff meadows, right? So that's a different answer because, uh, but it's the one I want to give to a person that inspired me. It, it wasn't a, a, a radical notion. I mean, we could think of it as that, as actually living a life like that as being radical. Right. Uh, it, the, the, the political uh, side of my interests really came about when we came back here and I got involved with, you know, the first CSA in New York State here uh, and working for a land trust. And and the land trust movement had been around since the ni- ni- late 19th century, but only in the 70s and 80s did it start to pick up. And, and, uh, and there was a reason for that, and that's because, um, you know, the uh, development pressure was building so strongly um, that there had to be a reaction to that to actually conserve or preserve land. And so because I was involved with the land trust, I then was involved with people who were doing this kind of work of saving land and mm. et cetera. And so that's where the, the sort of, you know, I'm not sure if you want to call it political, but, you know, that's where that direction came from, basically. Okay, I see. Yeah. I'm going to unpack a few things from there. Yeah. What was the reason initially that you were in, uh, that you went to England? To, so I went to England to um, to get a, a, a master's degree in writing. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and spent some time in London. Uh, spent two years. Actually, I lived in Oxford. I chose to live in Oxford, and I uh, spent two years there. And and uh, my my mentor there, who was a writer, uh, who was the head of the Antioch program, was called the Antioch Center for British Studies. Uh, was pursuing a, uh, a it's called a DPhil, a PhD at Oxford, and. I went to visit him and I said, well, I'd rather live here than London. And he got me what's called a reader's pass to the Bodleian Library, one of the great libraries in the world. And there I was reading in the Bodleian Library and having access to, well, basically every book published in the English language uh, for a couple of years. Um, And I got a job as a gardener. And that started the, I got a job as a gardener to pay my... Uh, it was called a bedsit, a one-room place where I was living that cost eight pounds a week, I think, at the time. And I got a job as a gardener working for a pound an hour. And then during the day, you know, I would read in the mornings in the Bodleian Library, and then I would garden in the afternoons, and off we off we go. Yeah, that's not a bad life, huh? <laughs> yeah. And so we, we didn't, my wife was also in this Antioch program, and uh, that's where we met. So we met in England. Uh, we came back to this country for a couple of years and missed being in England, felt we had to go back to explore some more, and uh, uh, wound up in Cornwall in the southwest tip of England, uh, near Land's End, it's called, and... Um, uh, in this little fishing village and lived there for eight years. And that's where I learned cliff meadow gardening. And, and, and following after that came, you know, back to the States and community-supported agriculture was opening up. So, yeah. Wow. So I've... It's quite a journey. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Although I'm seeing, uh, you know, you're, you're back in a fishing village kind of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, right. If you reach out far enough here, we would... One peninsula to the other, just yeah. 3,500 miles in between. I don't have a strong knowledge on agricultural practices. 
But, and to be honest, that's the first time I've heard the term uh, cliff meadow gardening. (laughs) But I would imagine uh, there's a particular set of practices and hurdles that that have to do with that because Mm. you're having like evaporation from the ocean and things Mm. like that. Mm. Um, Mm. Were there things that you, and also, you know, seasons I think are a bit different there where... Was there a learning curve between farming and gardening that you did there and then farming and gardening back here on the East End? Yeah, very big learning curve. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, I'm glad you mentioned seasons because uh, you're right. I mean, the part of England that we lived in is eight degrees further north than where we are now. We are in the you know northeast of the United States, but that's eight degrees further, further north. And the only reason... Um, that you can grow things there is because of the Gulf Stream, of course. So that's that determines, you know, that's a major factor in determining England's weather. Cornwall, in the southwest tip of it, uh, was ca- called the Cornish Riviera, which is a bit of a joke because it's not, yeah, yeah. Not, not even close <laughs> to the Riviera. Uh, however, it was the mildest part of England, and so the meadows that I worked in were on these cliffs. Uh, with a drop-off down to the water, Mounts Bay it's called, and uh, with the English Channel in the distance, which you could see. Uh, And um, it was called the earliest ground in Britain. So because it was south-facing and because we were in the mildest part of England, the first new potatoes uh, to find their way to London came out of these meadows, and the first flowers in the spring, and the spring there was February, Uh, because the temperature didn't vary very much. The temperature in the winter, the mean temperature in the winter was 48, and in the summer it was 58. Mm. So we're not talking about seasons. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Did you take a lot of pictures during that time? Um, Sounds like it'd be beautiful. We did take some pictures, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, my wife probably took more than I did, yeah. And well... Yeah, of course, we took lots of pictures because our first child was born there. So that's when you start taking lots of photographs, yeah. Yeah. It seems also probably like a place that's pretty inspiring for poetry then. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was, it's interesting because the weather was mild, but also totally unpredictable and Mm. the winds were ferocious. So at times, uh, so it was, you know, at times it was a spectacular landscape. I mean, when a when a gale came in, and the uh, and the and the and the water um, uh, rose towards the village, there was a wall that was built in 1392, a massive wall built in 1392, in, in this very interesting curved shape, just to stop that water from swamping the village, basically, wow. and so. Yeah, it was a very dramatic place to live in a storm. (laughs) In terms of, I guess, the intrinsic reward that you get or the satisfaction, is it different with with farming and poetry? Like, Mm. do you like it for the same reasons? Mm. Wow, no one's ever asked that question. Okay, well, hey. (laughs) That's fascinating. Um, Oh, boy, I'm going to have to... I'm think on to that think one, yeah. about that, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to think about it for a while. Maybe I'll write about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I was with Amanda earlier, and I've never written a book. I've mm. done a little freelance writing, but I'd love to write a book. But and maybe this is my own temperament. But whenever I finish something mm. and accomplish something, mm-hmm. 
I almost feel like depressed. Like I'm always just like, okay, what's the next thing? Oh man, like Mm. I had something to be completed and I was working at it, but now I'm a bit lost because it's over. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Um, Mm. So yeah, for Mm. me, I don't know. Like the reward isn't always in the completing. It's almost in the staying busy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's fascinating. That leads leads me into some different thoughts because the the, the um, part of farming that draws me closer to it, I think, is the fact that it is seasonal, and so mm. especially in this place, because there are definitely four seasons in in this climate here on the eastern end of Long Island, and um, and the progression of the seasons and watching that. And and anticipating it year after year, that's a very different thing than mm. what you're talking about the the feeling um, of after. I mean, basically, I, I'm a lyric poet, yeah. but I I found a little bit of success in writing these prose books, and that's very different than the. So the the thing about a lyric is it rises and then it falls. So that's what you're talking about feeling when you're feeling a sort of emptiness after after a creation, right? Mm. Farming is very different because you're always anticipating what do I do this autumn so that I can um, prepare the fields for the spring when I'm planting again. So there, there isn't really time. <laughs> there's really not time to you know uh, feel an emptiness because there, you're always trying to fulfill uh, what what you will be doing and preparing for the next year, basically. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. How did you then learn, um, or who did you learn from the practices uh, and the techniques that were necessary to be a successful farmer out here on the east end of Long Island? Well, luckily, the you know this is such a, a traditional, rich farming. I'm talking about different kinds of wealth, mm. <laughs> a rich farming community. That um, uh, when we began, I, uh, I I I asked every farmer out here I could when I had questions and you know uh, and and there was one family actually um, who operate what's called the green thumb you've probably gone by it on the highway many so. times and you know the family's been there farming for a very long time and their Halsey's the Halsey family has you know the 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 ancestor that it's all traced back to arrived in 1640 something you know and um, John Halsey uh, a, a different Halsey than the green thumb but he started the land trust that I worked for I worked worked with John for over 30 years and um, anyhow that family uh, really helped us in the beginning and they and we didn't have a greenhouse so we couldn't grow the first transplants they grew them for us uh, and I'd go to them constantly with questions, etc. And they were just so helpful. Uh, so that's how you learn, you know, when you're in a new place and a new uh, uh, seasonal setting and all that sort of thing. You you ask a lot of questions, and also the um, uh, the conference circuit, uh, especially the organic farming conference circuit. circuit it is incredibly helpful huh. for beginning farmers and. Uh, uh, and also at the same time, there, was the, there were these first meetings of community-supported agriculture enthusiasts, you know, and I got involved in that right away. And so there was constant dialogue, basically. That's that's how I learned. And 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 actually, there's another part that I don't want to that I want to mention, which is that 
I, I found, uh, you know, in the apprentices that I worked with for all these years, because that was part of the, the, the mission of our farm, was to teach other people this method of farming, was, was how important it was to uh, focus on learning about plants what plants are and how they work, etc. So, you know, that's part of being an agriculturist. Mm. <laughs> the beginning part of being an agriculture is, you know, all the other methods. It's one thing of how to do something, but the actuality of, of what you're working with and, and, and you know, how, how a plant, you know, functions in a, in a, in a, in a soil, in an ecosystem, etc. That's so... I ask a lot of questions about those things. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You mentioned native practices. I mean, practically every town out here has its name traced back to the the people that lived here. Mm -hmm. Is there any, did anyone sort of record the farming practices that they were using? Like, is there a way to, to, you could read and learn about that? Well, um, I think the best way would be to... um, would be to talk to um, some members of the Shinnecock Nation. Mm. So we actually had a, in the very early years of the farm, uh, someone came to us, and I, I can't remember that person's name, but um, linked us up with um, a, a wonderful fellow named Lamont Smith, who was the grower. Uh, he was known as the as the, as the gardener at you know at, at he knew about plants at the reservation at the Shinnecock reservation and he needed some land to uh, to try and uh, uh, do some experiments with the kind of practices he didn't have the land available right at that time I think on the reservation and and we found a place for him not at our farm but at a nearby farm owned by a wonderful woman uh, named. Um, Mary Ryan, and and for a couple of years I worked with him, and so uh, he, when for instance when he planted the three sisters, which is the thing that most people know about the corn, beans, and squash, uh, he waited to plant the corn until uh, the uh, the fish were running, and then he would um, uh, he he would he'd he'd actually you know uh, gather fish as fertilizer. And 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 he would plant the corn in a um, in a mound uh, with the fish as fertilizer, the whole fish underneath, and then plant the squash and the beans on top of that mound. Uh. So I mean, there it was. There, right, right, <laughs> I right. was in front of my eyes. You know the, the 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 methods that everyone had been talking about. I don't know. You could probably find references like that in books. I don't. I don't ha- actually have one on my shelf. Okay. However, I'm still. I'm still um, so. There's, a, there's another um, a wonderful young uh, young man named Shane Weeks at, at on the uh, living on the reservation, and uh, this is a good story. So I, I, I really should tell this one. Cool. Uh, I um, uh, I attended a, a, a farming conference upstate a couple of years ago. There's a woman who lives in Binghamton who grows out many varieties of beans. In fact, she maintains a thousand varieties of beans. And there was one particular bean uh, that appealed to me. Uh, and I said, what is this one? Uh, you know, because she would, you know, share the beans with you if, you if you were interested. And she said, it's a Shinnecock bean. And I said, well, I know Shinnecocks. I might 
children went to school with shinnecocks and, and uh, you know, could I take some of these and, you know, share them with someone on the reservation? So I, I brought the bean back. Um, COVID happened, so I, I grew it out for one year uh, in, in a gar- my garden in Amagansett um, at the farm in a little field tucked in the back of the farm. The next year came around, I called Shane at, and I said, you know, I have this bean that I picked up in Syracuse, New York, and it's supposedly a Shinnecock bean. And he said, is it cranberry colored? That was his first question. I said, yes, it's cranberry colored. He said, I've heard about that and I've always wanted to find it. And so I said, well, it's yours. And I gave him the Shinnecock cranberry bean and he grew it out this year on the Shinnecock reservation. And the woman who I got it from, got it from a Cherokee grower in Kentucky who had gotten it from his grandfather, he's a third generation, you know, seed saver. His grandfather got it from a fisherman from Long Island who obviously got it from the Shinnecock Reservation. And a hundred years later, it's back on the reservation. That is wild. Isn't that an amazing story? Wow. <laughs> yeah, really something. What for for people listening, I guess, can you, I guess, define what a land trust and what a CSA is and if, if they're different? Yeah. Uh, well, well, for a while we were the only um, the only ones doing that, and I, I, I from the first fifteen years that um, so land trusts and CSAs, you know, are now conjoined in okay. more of a way. But at one time they weren't at all. We were literally the only ones in the country doing that because the business of land trusts has always been to preserve or conserve land, um, and the business of CSAs has been to grow food for a community. Um, but those two, you know, first of all, CSAs are were fairly new, and so it got put together here basically because John Halsey welcomed the idea at the, at, at, you know, at the Peconic Land Trust. He'd Started that in '83, and he was approached with this idea of a CSA in 1989. So it was six years later, and then for many years um, we were it. We were the only ones doing it. And I would go to land trust conferences and talk about CSA, and I would go to CSA conferences and talk about land trusts. <laughs> and now it's happening, not on a great scale, but there are more projects like this happening around the country. And, and um, you know, there's another mixture, and, and, and it has to do with, uh, you know, the preservation of land, and is it being set aside for habitat, or is it being set aside for people, mm. uh, you know, uh, and, and CSAs obviously are from the very basis of it involved with community, with, with you know, serving people, and uh, so putting those two together seems like a natural idea, right? And uh, you know, now it's happening a bit. So, is the idea with a CSA that the community gets involved in the growing, or is it that it's supposed to serve like one specific geographical area? It, it varies. It varies a lot because now there are, you know, apparently, I don't know. I've heard different figures: seven or eight thousand CSAs in the in this country. Um, uh, so obviously, there are many different models. And um, sometimes uh, uh, a CSA farmer grows the food uh, maybe two hours away from a city and links up with the community in a particular area of that city and drives the food in. Uh, Sometimes in a farm like ours, members actually come to the farm 
And uh, the unusual thing about ours, which is very, very rare, is that members actually harvest their own food. And so they're, wow. they're there involved with the community of the soil at the same time that, you know, they're involved with the community that's being formed by people growing food in a place, etc. Yeah. So does a member get involved through like paying a yearly fee or yeah. something like that? Oh. Yeah, yeah, that's basically how it works. So it, it cuts out the middleman, basically. The idea is you're, you're supporting a, a farmer uh, uh, and you know your farmer, right? You, you know your farmer. And, and, and of course you do if you, uh, uh, another form of it, you know, that's existed all over the world, are, of course, are farmer's markets. Right. Uh, um, but this is taking it a bit further, and 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 and, and the idea, you know, in, in the ideal would be to actually you would all of your vegetables would you would be receiving them from a place that you know, a farmer that you know, you know, a, a soil that you know. How do we do that in New York in the winter? Well. Th- Season extension is the uh. word that's used for, you know, people growing in greenhouses, etc. Okay. And the other factor uh, is, you know, root cellar storage. And the, oh. that's, how fa- that's, how, that's how human beings functioned for, you know, thousands of years was, you know, digging pits and, and storing food over the winter. And um, I think early on in our CSA, maybe... Second or third year, our members asked just what you, they said, what do we do during the winter? And we said, well, we guess we have to build a root cellar. And we did. And so we actually, it's very hard to keep food production going 12 months of the year, but we were doing it 10 months of the year, you know. It, with with root storage, et cetera. And then you have to wait, and we have cold springs here. So, you know, April comes around, and people say, well, but where, where are the vegetables? Well, we just planted them. Yeah. <laughs> we just put the seeds in the ground. you got to wait a little bit. So there's a funny little window there in the early spring where the crops that are have been stored over the winter in a root cellar are sort of fading and you're not, you don't have the new crops. But, you know, you can make it through most of the winter. Interesting. Yeah. This probably seems quite obvious, but you, again, you're educating people about this. You're teaching people. You're a proponent of it. Uh, why? Uh, what are, the, what are the, the problems that this is solving? Hmm. Well, what I, I'm so um, fortunate that I got involved with a land trust as well as when at the same time that this thing called CSA was happening. You mentioned the word radical before, and community-supported agriculture is a radical idea. It's not, a, a, you know, you're not putting your money on a counter at a, at a store. You're, you're supporting, uh, you know, you're, you're in return for your, you know, yearly fee you're getting vegetables you know and and uh and the most important part of that is supplying fresh nutritious food uh but at the same time you're supporting an ethic a a land ethic and uh and i i learned more about that sort of year by year as i was 
you know, part of the land trust movement and the and the CSA movement. So, hmm. so why it's to, uh, I mean, ultimately for any farmer, it's to take good care of the soil, and to take good care of the soil, you're uh, growing nutritious food, and 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 then you're you're uh, passing health on to to people into the soil through that, and so um, it's a. A traditional idea and a radical idea at the same time, I suppose. Uh, but for many years, you know, the 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 uh, well, you said this sounds simplistic, but it's simplistic to say that health involves food. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we know that again. But like for many the, years, it, those yeah. those were kept separate. So in probably the biggest way possible. Yeah. Um, I don't know if if I get too subversive here, just just tell me to stop, but. Um, again, thinking about that as a radical notion, there's a lot of money to be made in, in the pharmaceutical industry mm. and teaching people to live a healthy life that's largely based off of the food that they consume and not the medicinal products that they can pay a whole lot of money for is radical. And I don't mean to sound corny here, but possibly even dangerous, like an idea that, um, may try some industries may try to to silence the voices of have you ever come up against any sort of like resistance for the farming movement oh yeah yeah i mean the 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 i mean it is amazing what kind of awakening there has been in the last well in the last 30 years that mm. that i've been farming but but before that um you know the family farm was on decline in a, in a way that no one would have imagined you know at, you know after the second world war a half the population 50% of the population lived on farms and and you know uh that vanished very quickly right and uh yeah the uh uh the uh resistance from the industrial model is it surrounds us right it surrounds us, and um, and yet all of the uh, the uh, organic farming movements and conservation movements and everything have been building a, another strength, right? And and it's constant. I mean, what you you know what what we're up against, basically. We know that, um, but we also know um, that we have to make radical changes. Um, we're, you know, the the earth is needs us right now, needs us to care for it, yeah. and uh, so that's what I've been on the side of, and uh, yeah. It's so interesting. It's like almost like the path to progress is through a regression, and I don't mean regressing in a, like a negative or primitive sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm also like I'm conscious of the fact that you know I I travel. It's my biggest passion. It's mm what a lot of this podcast is based off of. Mm. And that is not possible in the way that I want to do it without technological advancement and mm. industrialization. But it does feel like we are at a point of knowledge and technical know-how where we can combine those two things um, in a way that would benefit people and the earth. But it always sort of comes down to, again, I think money and the money to be made. And I don't know how... We sort of wrestle that away from the power structure, I guess, mm. to create that 
I don't know, <laughs> utopian type of future that I think so many people seek. Well, we, I mean, we, the shift that is needed is a, a monumental shift. Yeah. We, we know that, but we have to do it. <laughs> um, you know, look where we are. <laughs> yeah. And we have to do it. So how, how can that monumental shift come about? Um, I think it can come about through um, a communication, a new form of communication, uh, which has always existed but has been ignored. And you just do that one, one person to one person, hopefully one person to one tree, mm. <laughs> one person to the soil that uh, is uh, providing the food, etc. So, um, you know... It's a, it's a, it's an enormous shift that we're, we, we, we have to create. Does your work ever include, or your, your work in, and what you promote and what you teach, does it ever include animals and livestock and or foraging in a sense? Well, I've never, I, you know, I've been involved in farming, uh, vegetables basically. And I, I, for whatever reason, I didn't grow up in a farm, so I didn't have that comfort level with, with animals. And I've certainly known and visited many farms where, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. And uh, it just hasn't been on my map. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Except for chickens. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I do think, sort of fitting with the theme, like I was in Iceland over the summer, and they do have some issues there. They're actually farming some salmon and it's kind of a hot mess. But like if it, lamb is a big thing there. Mm. Um, the mm. only indigenous mammal was like the Arctic fox or something like that that oh, they have there. Interesting. Huh? But uh, sheep were brought in at some point. And if you're having lamb, it's it's from there and they're mm. very clear about like this is hormone free mm. and all that. Mm. Um, and the cod and the salmon come from their waters. So... I do think there is a way to still keep things local and to also incorporate animal proteins, but again, it would have to dismantle the sort of factory model. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's what community-supported agriculture is about. It's mm. all about focusing on the local as the only sustainable way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? F uh, maybe I'm too much of a pessimist, Scott. Do mm. you feel optimistic <laughs> about the future? <laughs> Uh, it's the only way to be. In my <laughs> it doesn't mean I, I don't have doubts, but um, ultimately, I yeah, the, I've chosen to be involved in what I've has given me has mm. grown in optimism. Actually, I've worked with so many young people. You know, that was a major part of what we of what we accomplished, uh, and it still is happening at the farm. Uh, uh, you know, I stepped back two years ago, but um, you know, I. I had, you know, 150 or more apprentices over the years, and the point was to involve young people, in, and 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 we need to do that in every educational fashion that is possible, basically. Mm. And 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 if you work with young people, uh, and you find you, it's amazing um, how energized you know uh, one can get by. Um, by finding the uh, the hopefulness in 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 the next generations, yeah. Actually, I found out about your work because I went to Amber Waves Farm, mm. 
And then I was like, hmm, they might be interesting to talk to. So I reached the, the women there and I saw their story and they were on their bio or their about me on the website. They specifically mentioned you are apprenticing with you and learning from you. Yeah. So I was like, let me check this out. <laughs> then I saw the beard and I was like, yeah. this is my kind of guy. Um, yeah, Katie, actually, it's Amanda and Katie. And, yeah. and uh, Katie, it's an inter- interesting story how this happens. And, and the connection between uh, literature and working with the earth is that Katie read my book, This Common Ground, and called up from California oh. and said, I, I, I want to make a change in my life and I want to come and apprentice on your farm and we said well we always have interview we always need to interview someone we want to meet you we want to make sure that you feel as though you is you know it's an intense experience to farm for a year in a place and we want you to meet the place as well and she said well it's a long way and she wasn't really able and she kept calling back and finally said just Pack your bag and come. Mm. <laughs> and look where she is years years later. Uh, uh, she and Amanda, I think they're maybe in year 12 or 13 or something like that. Oh, that's an amazing place. Yeah, it's quite a place. Yeah. What are the, I guess, the biggest hurdles to the success of these small farms? Like, again, with a rudimentary knowledge of this topic, I'm aware of like large government subsidies for very few farms mm. that are, you know, monocrops pumping out. Yeah. The majority of like this country's corn or something like that. And like, mm-hmm. I guess very little assistance going to small farms. But, you know, how difficult is it to be successful? Well, the first hurdle is is land ownership. And so that's why they, that's the that's the first advantage of land trusts actually owning land or farmland that can be rented or leased. Even even there's some really remarkable um long-term leases that uh, people have worked out that uh, uh, make it possible for a farmer to be on a land that isn't owned uh, but can have a security, right? So finding the land is the first thing. Um, uh, the next thing is um, uh, finding a community that mm. will support, you know, the work that the farmer is doing. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, finding a community that's willing to pay what it really costs to, you know, to grow food. And, and, and as a society, we're, because of subsidies, we haven't been willing to take that, you know. So we spend a lot of money on all the other trappings uh, that consumerism, you know, has supplied for us. Um, but we haven't yet chosen to pay what it really costs to grow food and take care of land in a sustainable fashion. It's mm. interesting. I talked about optimism and the sun's coming out. Oh, a bit too. <laughs> Maybe that's a, a metaphor there. Oh, it's a bit of Irish love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'll wrap soon, but I have a couple questions about uh, poetry. Mm. I don't know why, but I have like such like the aesthetics of a workspace and a, like a, a desk to me. I just love for some reason. So I'm always mm. asking artists and writers and creatives, like, mm. um, do you have a specific setting or workspace that you are most like comfortable and creative working in? Yeah, well, I have a wonderful study now right here. Um, you know, we raised three kids. The kids are kids are not here, and I've I've got I've got a study here in the back, and um, uh, I'm I write at uh, a chair. 
that I start off in, in the morning. I start off reading before I'm writing. And uh, this year I, I, have, I have a wonderful large glass window door that I can look out in the woodland here and I, I put a new bird feeder up, which you can, you can mm-hmm. see right behind me here, so I can actually read and see the birds feeding in the morning at the same time. And then I go to my desk, which was my father's desk, and it's a wonderful roll-top desk, and uh, that's where the computer is. And so when I get to the stage of after writing in my notebook, then I write on the computer at the desk. Um, the first book um, actually... I, I the only time I had to write then because the kids were young uh, and when I came home I was immediately involved with the kids was I took an hour at the end of the day and mm. wrote at my desk at the farm that's how that happened I, I, I know it's hard for me to believe that I actually made it happen but now I actually this is the first time one of the first times that I've really had uh, you know, the day, the whole day to, you know, manage the way that I choose to do that. And, uh, and so writing there in my study is an ideal thing. Yeah. Do you write every day? I write every day. If I'm not, I, I, if I'm not writing, I'm reading and taking Mm -hmm. notes. Yeah. I've talked to so many people during the pandemic and people's creative juices and their ability to, uh, complete things or even have the motivation is very drastically by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's a, I'm sure like sociologists will have 10 years, tons of studies on this. Yeah. Yeah. How were you with productivity and creativity during this time? Well, it's odd because it happened, you know, exactly when I retired or graduated as, as, mm. as my wife says, from I like the that. Farm. <laughs> and that's when the pandemic happened. And so my intention was to, I had this book that I was, you know, had I was ready to work on, and uh, and what do you know? That's exactly what I had the time, what I had the time to do. And uh, so I don't know. It's a it was interesting timing, and also um, uh, I feel incredibly fortunate that in this time we you know we're surrounded by woods, uh, protected land, and and so we I would have you know the opportunity to walk, uh, which is a very healthy thing to do mm. when you're spending time sitting at a desk to get up and walk in the woods. <laughs> I, I'll ask you one more, Scott. Mm-hmm. I probably on your website, but somewhere, because we had started talking maybe a couple months ago like yeah. via email. So mm-hmm. usually once somebody shows a little interest or says yes, or we'll do it in the future, I'm immediately like, I'm researching, I'm researching. Mm. And somewhere compiled a bunch of your talks and some spoken poetry. It was probably your website. But mm-hmm. I have here in my notes that right before you read a poem called Cerulean, you said that um, some people might say that poetry makes nothing happen. Mm. But in my life, it makes everything happen. Oh, wow. Uh, do you recall saying that? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. And I, 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 is that, that's actually on the web somewhere? It, it was you giving a talk before reading the poem. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. So it I, was at, it was at, a, I, I, um, uh, I was, uh, giving the keynote talk at the NOFA New York Winter Conference, the Northeast Organic Farming Association. And it was a very 
poignant moment because, you know, it was quite an honor to get that. And I had a chance to talk about what we've been talking about, the connection between farming and poetry. And yeah, that that's line comes from, I think it's an Auden poem, poetry makes nothing happen. It okay. survives in the da-da-da-da. And, and, and that's what I was remembering that and, and and it's true. I, I and only if I if I wasn't asked to give a talk like that, I probably wouldn't have had that recognition. But it's true. It has made everything happen. Yeah. Yeah, life. I was wondering about that. Like, it are you always seeing the poetry in things? Is your brain always going? Are you always making that? connection between your surrounding and to, you know, uh, beautiful words. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the best way to reflect on that is that I see, I see the, I see life poetically. I see the world poetically. And that hasn't always been the easiest because not everyone <laughs> sees it that way. However you describe that, not everyone sees it that way. And, and that can be isolating. Um, but, you know, I've now lived seven decades, so I've found a way that it isn't isolating. It's the opposite of that. It's connecting. Well, I'm going to remember that because I sometimes walk around with like a hard shell around me. So mm. I will gladly accept that wisdom. So <laughs> thank you, Scott. Um, listen, it is always such a pleasure. Like I was just telling Amanda this too, mm. and I've gushed about this a million times on the podcast, but mm. I get to find someone interesting or mm. read something or listen to something, become enamored with someone. Mm. And through the magic of this silly little podcast, I get to now sit down with them and know them and pick mm. their brain. So mm. it is truly an honor to do this with you. Thank mm. you for, for the time, for the info and the wisdom. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Cool. Cheers. <laughs> hey, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 250 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. 250, again, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, here's to 250 more. And maybe, I don't know, we'll do a little, some kind of little celebration when we get to 300. Thanks again to Scott and to Megan for hosting me at their place. I I don't know, my life is weird. <laughs> I am so fortunate to, to read about someone, to read their stuff, to enjoy someone's art, work, content, and then to be able to sit down with them. I don't know. It's bizarre, but it's wonderful and beautiful, and I love doing it. So, again, thank you so much. I'll have some episodes coming shortly, so please stay tuned. Give a like, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. I'm going to sign off and say, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon. Mm -hmm.